Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Hello, good morning, and welcome to Compass. If you don't know me, my name is Cameron, and I am the worship pastor here at Compass. So usually when you see me, I'm doing the like music portion of service and not the speaking portion. But today I'm speaking to you guys today, and I'm so excited. Um, First, before I jump in and pick, like, and talk about the scripture that I was assigned, I want to talk about my experience working at Royal Family Kids Camp. So, for those of you, thank you, Stevie. Stevie knows. Stevie knows. For those of you that don't know, Royal Family Kids Camp is a summer camp designed for children in foster care. So, it's a really great week. It's a great program. Everything is very, like, carefully picked to meet the needs of the kids that we serve. And I got to be a counselor. Um, the kids really love it. Um, but for the adults, it can be real, real emotionally taxing and like physically taxing. So you're running on like no sleep and just like from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. is just full of activities with the kids. And they love it. The adults really struggle to get through it sometimes. But Wednesday of that week, middle of the week, we had swimming and zip lining scheduled as their afternoon activity really fun. And just listen to this. This is important to the story. The zip line is a 25-minute walk away from the campground. So you take this 25-minute walk, you get to the zip line, you see it in all its glory. There's a steep hill that you have to climb up. And there's like no like, I don't know, there's no like railing to help you get up this hill. So you get up the hill and then you have to climb up four flights of stairs. (sighs) It was awful. So, and I also just need you to know, the oldest in our group was 12, and the youngest was 6, right? Yeah, there's a big difference between a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old, very different needs. So, my group of kids had swimming first, and then they had to change and go to the zip line. Personally, I would like to find the person who decided that scheduling two hours of swimming and then scheduling two hours of zip lining right after each other. I would like to find them and scratch their eyes out because that was a horrible idea. They gave us 10 minutes, 10 minutes to transition these kids. So they have two hours of swimming. They're all in their swimsuits. They're all drenched from being in the pool. We're supposed to walk them back to the room. And I think we had like, I think we had nine girls in our room. We have nine kids. We have to walk them back to the room. We have to get them changed, and they have to have closed-toed shoes on. So we have to get them to wear socks. And that is so difficult because they don't want to wear socks. They want to just put their shoes on and go. Anyways, it was a nightmare. And at one point, this is, I think she was like 10. I had a kid who, we're, we're done with the pool. She's changed. She gets into her bed, and it's just like coloring. And then she lays down. And I'm like, hey, honey, we got we to gotta go got to wake up and she's so mad oh she's so mad and she's like Cameron I'm so I'm just I'm so tired why can't we just stay and take a nap I don't want to go to the zip line I'm like I know I'm really sorry we just got to go to the zip line and at some point I can't just pretend like I'm having fun like I my strategy with her was like I know I think it's stupid too I really want to take a nap but we have to go, so that's what we're doing. And eventually she went to the zip line, it was fine. But all the kids were exhausted and it was just such a difficult, difficult time. So finally, we get to the zip line, we get all the kids that wanted to go on the zip line, down the zip line, back to the bottom, and we're ready to go back to the campground for dinner. 
The only problem is the six-year-old, we're going to call her Sadie. The six-year-old didn't want to walk back to the campground. She was tired and like kind of rightfully so, I get it. She was exhausted. So first she gets mad. We're like, okay, we're going to go back to the campground for dinner. Woo. She goes, I don't want to. And so we're like, okay, great, 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 great. And so using like classic six-year-old logic, she gets mad. And so like campgrounds this way, zip lines this way. She's like, I don't want to. And she starts walking back to the zip line. And I'm like, Sadie, walking back to the zip line is going to make the walk to camp more difficult. This isn't solving the problem. She's like, I don't care. And so whatever. And so eventually I negotiated with the six-year-old and I was like, okay, how about we just sit for five minutes, we rest our feet, and then we walk back to the, to the campground. And she agrees. We do that. We sit for five minutes. We start walking back. Then on the walk back, she's really upset. She wants to stop because she found a cricket. And the previous day they had a woodworker, woodworker, yeah, thank you, sorry. We had a woodworker come in and they built these, they were actually kind of cool, they built these little bug catchers that you could catch a bug and put it in and she wanted to find a bug and she found a cricket and so she's like, stop, 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 I need to get this cricket. So she put the cricket in the little basket and she kept walking and like honestly, God bless that poor cricket, like, you know that scene from Finding Nemo where, I think it's Darla, where she, like, has the bag and she's just, like, shaking it? That, yeah, that cricket, like, all the, like, counselors, she's like, look at my cricket, and they're like, wow, he's so cool, and we're all just trying to pretend, like, we're not going to acknowledge the fact that this cricket has been dead for, like, three hours, so that poor cricket... So finally, we start walking back, and she's walking really slow, as, you know, six-year-olds do and as a tired six-year-old does. And then we get to this huge puddle in our path. And so Sadie, she's she's like, I don't want to get my shoes wet. And we're like, that's great. We agree. No one wants to get their shoes wet. So instead of letting us just, like, help her over the puddle, she's like, I need to take off my shoes and socks. And so she takes off her shoes and socks and walks through the puddle. And then at this point... I'm, I'm not fighting you on this. Like, I'm going to lose this battle. Um, but she takes off her shoes and socks, and she walks through the wet puddle. And then she's like, I need to put my shoes back on. And she sits down. <laughs> and then she got frustrated because her feet were wet, and she didn't want to put her wet feet back into her dry socks. And so she's like, we need to sit and let my feet dry. <laughs> and so we're like, all right. <laughs> And so at this point, all of my girls in my room had already gone up ahead to the campground and there was no one to let them back to their room. So I went back up and went back with the group and helped manage that. So I don't know what happened after I left. They eventually made it back to the campground and that's all that matters. Honestly, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't there. I never like... I was never mean and never let my internal monologue like spill out of me, but I know that internally I would just been like, oh my gosh, just put your shoes on and walk back to camp. It was fine. (laughs) We did it. And like, this is important to know, like the kids had a great week. And one of the things that the general rules of camp is, as long as it's safe and reasonable, we can say yes to what the kids want to do. So essentially like, as long as it's safe, the kids can do whatever they want. So like, if Sadie wants to take a long walk back from the zip line to camp, great. We're going to do it as long as it's safe. So 
I mean, it's fun for the kids. It's not really fun for the adults, but anyways. So I share that with you today because I felt that it related to the passage in Matthew we're looking at. Um, we're looking at Matthew 18, 12 through 14. It says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills, go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the, wait, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. So I was reading this and thinking, I'm going to do some research about sheep because I don't really know a lot about sheep. Here's a few facts. Okay, one, sheep have excellent hearing. Didn't know that. There are over a thousand different breeds of sheep. Sheep can apparently like self-medicate and be emotionally complex. <laughs> I guess I, in my head, when I, when I read sheep can self-medicate, they were talking about it in the context of eating. I was like, do they like eat marijuana plants? Like, is that how they self-medicate? But then I was telling, I was telling Jen about it and, and she was like, I think maybe they just meant like emotionally eat when they're stressed. And that makes way more sense. <laughs> Not quite as good for the sheep, but whatever. Um, <laughs> sheep are actually very clever. I didn't know this. I think when I was a kid, I heard uh, years ago, I heard some, a pastor talking about this passage and he was like, and sheep are really dumb. So they really need a shepherd. Just like we're really dumb and we really need God. So I just had in my head that like sheep are really dumb, but they're not, they're actually pretty clever. They can see almost 360 degrees. So sheep, we have like our peripheral vision. Sheep can see anything that isn't directly behind them. So like, if you're like, kind of like over here, a sheep can see you. They can see very far and they're very good at seeing. <laughs> they're also very anxious animals. It's really difficult for a sheep Sorry, I'm still not over that. Sheep, it takes a lot for a sheep to feel at ease with you. One of the websites I looked at, it was an Australian website, and it was giving like advice to people who want to like buy sheep. And they're like, one of the questions that someone submitted was like, why doesn't my sheep like me? And they were like, well, you have to approach it from like, like 20 yards away, like really far and really slowly for it to like be like, okay, you're not a threat, you're good. So sheep, they're really scared. Most important thing to know about sheep, they are highly social animals and do very poorly outside of a flock. And I found that really interesting that sheep are highly social. And obviously when a sheep is outside of its flock, it's more at risk for like, you know, being eaten or just being prey in general. So that is a big risk factor for sheep that are alone. But also, they don't do well, like, emotionally. They get, like, really anxious and distressed whenever they're away from other sheep. And this is a quote from the website I found. It said, sheep need other sheep to feel happy. Sheep that don't have the company of other sheep will feel scared, unprotected, unhappy, panicked, anxious, and can be very hard to handle. So when sheep are afraid, they naturally run back towards their flock for safety and protection, and when a sheep is endangered, they may like panic or freeze or run away. And sometimes they'll just like sit there and shake. Um, and they're described literally as prey animals. Like that's their purpose. They are prey for predators. Um, and when they're alone, they're unprotected and extremely vulnerable. I watched a, a video of like, sometimes sheep will, whenever their wool 
is really like thick and they need to be sheared, sometimes they'll like get scared and then they'll like fall over or something, but they can't get back up. So like it's this video of this like farmer just grabbed both of its legs and just like threw it and then the sheep just sprinted away. It was awesome. I love it. So much like sheep, humans are entirely social beings. I didn't know if you knew that. Um, Community plays a huge role in the mental health of humans. So social isolation, and I think we all know this because we all experienced it during the first few months of COVID, like when we're all alone, we experience these things. Social isolation is associated with higher anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, and suicide rates. However, social connectedness correlates with lower anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, and suicide rates. To be ostracized from your community is devastating for the mental and emotional well-being of a person. And I was thinking about this, and I, it was actually, I was talking to um, my, like, my doctor just about mental health and stuff, and she was telling me, she's like, it's really hard. I have a lot of people who, like, are really struggling, but, like, there's nothing that I can prescribe that's going to meet the needs of just, like, having community and having friends. Like, there's no amount of, like, therapy that can fill the need of community that's within all of us. And a lot of mental health experts, that's why mental health experts like support groups. So isolation, it can make us feel like our problems are only our own and they're completely our fault. Isolation makes us feel like we're defective or less than for struggling with a problem. But when we have real and genuine community that embraces us, It reminds us that we're not alone. A great example I would say would be um, like Alcoholics Anonymous or Celebrate Recovery. Just healing is so much easier when you're surrounded by people who understand what you're going through and have the same common goal of wanting to overcome this, this problem or this addiction. There's a lot of research to show that positive social interactions and relationships can actually prevent serious symptoms of PTSD from showing up later in life. So things like Royal Family Kids Camp, for a kid that's been in foster care um, or who has experienced trauma, things like Royal Family Kids Camp can actually help offset some of the serious effects of PTSD later in life. And this is not me trying to say that like, oh, the kids just need to go to one week of camp and then they're healed and all their problems are gone. Not at all what I'm trying to say. Like, But these positive interactions, positive relationships can really impact and help and help prevent serious symptoms of PTSD from showing up later in life. And it actually, positive relationships, positive community can impact, specifically in children, can impact um, how they face adversity. So there's thing there's this thing in like the social work psychology world that's called ACEs, adverse childhood events. And kids who have supportive relationships when they go through an adverse childhood event typically build better resiliency and are able to cope with it better than kids who maybe don't have positive relationships or interactions. And so relationships and community is really powerful. Another example, and I thought this was really, really interesting. So I read this book last year. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it was written by this, I think it's a clinical psychologist been doing it, he's been doing it for years, um, and he wrote about his research in PTSD, and the book is about how 
your body kind of holds on to traumatic events and how like your mind can like separate from your body when you're experiencing something terrible. Really interesting book. It's not very uplifting, but anyways. Um, yeah, so after World War I, psychologists were researching what we now know as PTSD. Um, back then it was just called shell shock because they only saw it in um, soldiers who had come back from war. So that's kind of the context. Now we're gonna move like past World War II, post-World War II. Researchers started studying adolescents and young adults who, when they were kids, lived in European cities that had been affected by bombings. So um, in that time, some parents had to make the difficult decision to send their kids to live um, in rural areas so that they knew that they'd be safe and they wouldn't die in a bombing. Um, so researchers decided they wanted to study the like mental health outcomes of some of these kids. So they had one group, the kids that were sent to rural areas, and then they had the other group, the kids that stayed with their families. What was really interesting is the kids that stayed with their excuse me, families and had those connections, but still experienced the trauma of having their city be bombed and just all that stuff, they were less likely to develop symptoms of PTSD than the ones who were more physically safe, but they weren't close to their families or their communities. It's easier to overcome adversity when we have community. And I really just wanna point out like a huge disclaimer with that example. They're looking at PTSD symptoms. Obviously we know that there are some kids who maybe stayed with their parents, they didn't develop PTSD, but they didn't develop PTSD because a bomb killed them. So that's kind of dark and terrible, but that's an important thing to know. That's not a like casting judgment on the parents that decided to stay together. It's just looking at the mental health outcomes of what happens when we face adversity separate from the people that we love versus when we face adversity with the people that we love. Because we're wired to love, to be loved, and to love others. We have a lot in common with sheep. I, and this is an example I was thinking about. I was scrolling through Twitter, which is now called X. I am never going to call it X. That's never going to happen. I don't know, because when you, when you post on Twitter, you're like, oh, I just tweeted this. Like, what do you say when you post on X? Like, you still say, oh, I tweeted. It doesn't matter, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. I was scrolling through Twitter, um, and a pastor I followed shared some, some really cool information, and he was talking about the protective factors that religion offers for people with suicidal ideation. So like protective factors are things that basically are going to keep you from being at higher risk for committing suicide. And so things about religion can be very protective for people who struggle with that and it can prevent people from kind of even getting there in the first place. So it can help it helps build self-esteem. It helps you have like a sense of purpose, like this whole like higher power thing, sense of purpose. It can help set like personal boundaries for you. But the biggest thing is community. People who are religious tend to have close connections with a religious community. And that can help protect them from negative mental health outcomes. Well, what this pastor shared with me, like shared after that 
it was, it was really upsetting. And um, basically he shared this and he was like, well, you know, this is great. However, this isn't true for LGBT people. According to the Trevor Project, one study found that LGBT young adults ages 18 to 24 found that parents' religious beliefs about homosexuality were associated with double the risk of attempting suicide in your teenagers. And I was sitting there and I'm like, what do you do with that? And I, I read it and like, I have this phrase like, I'm disappointed but not surprised. That's kind of how I felt. I was like, yeah, I knew that. That really sucks. That wasn't like earth shattering information for me to learn. I mean, we kind of just know that. I mean, you hear story after story of gay Christians, especially teenagers, being pushed out of their communities because of this. I mean, I, I had a friend in high school. We had journalism together and he was telling me about this like small group that he was in and he was like, I knew I was gay for a long time. I told my small group in person that I was gay. And he was like, it was just like quiet. Like, he was like, they weren't like mean to me, but they weren't like, oh, I'm so happy that you like shared this with us. Um, he was like, they just, like I got this feeling that they were just uncomfortable around me and that they didn't know what to do with me. Um, and so he's telling me about this and he was like, they didn't like say, you need to leave this small group. He's like, they just slowly stopped inviting me to things. And I noticed it when I realized that I was removed from their group chat, that I was no longer even in the loop on things. Like, and that was the point where I knew that like, he was like, church just isn't really a place for me. And I think that some of us might listen to that and be like, man, that's really sad. But like, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily want the sheep to be totally outside the flock. I'm okay with them being in the flock, but I just don't want them to sing on the worship team. I'm okay with them being in the flock, but they need to be like on the like fringes of the flock because I'm not comfortable with them being around my kids. You know, we need to keep them on the edge of the flock because we really honestly, we can't risk them leading other sheep astray. Or we might say, you know what, maybe it's better that that sheep wandered off. You know, they just, they weren't in line with our church vision and they really just couldn't get with it. But that's not how God works. The kingdom of God is not better off when a sheep wanders away. I mean, it says it in that passage that God rejoices when a sheep that's been ostracized or wanders away comes back. That God rejoices over that one more than the 99 that stayed. In Romans 12, 13 through 16, it says this. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And this is important. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So when Paul wrote this, in the church, in early church, 
there were people who were extremely wealthy and there were also people in the church who were slaves. So you had some people who had really high status and really high privilege, and then you had some people who had nothing, literally nothing. And so this issue that came out was the people with higher status in the church were embarrassed to be seen in the same group as someone who was a slave. And I just think about, and I, I like that it said, this translation, it says, be willing to associate with people of low position, being willing to associate with people who don't have the privileges that we do. And honestly, like, to be quite frank with some of the laws that are being, being passed, there's probably a lot of LGBT people who are in low societal positions. And how are we approaching being associated with them? How are we loving them and including them into our flock? The church is meant to be a body of people that models the kingdom of God. So we do this by living in harmony with one another and associating with people who are different than us and welcoming people in. And the more I was reading this verse, I was thinking about just the way that God loves me personally. When I think about that, I'm forced to think about the bigger picture of the society that I live in. I mean, I'm a social work student. In every single class, they teach us how to look at big picture problems. The first day of my social work policy class, one of my professors was like, yeah, a lot of people pick social work because they really like the counseling aspect of it. This class, she's like, you're gonna find that a lot of personal problems that people may have when you zoom out, it's actually a society problem. And you can't help someone with their personal problems if you don't understand the world in which we live in. And so I just think that that's really interesting and that's the lens through which I see the world. And so I was thinking about this story as the sheep who wandered away. And I was like, what would that be in real life, like as a, as a person? And to me, I thought of someone who struggled with a substance abuse problem. That's how I see this story. So let's call this person, let's call this Emily. Let's call this person Emily. Emily, you know, grew up in a loving family, close loving family. Um, eventually when she graduated high school, she kind of hang out with the wrong crowd and developed a heroin addiction. So it became a problem, lost her home, lost her job, lost her relationships, living on the street with a heroin addiction. And so, after a couple months, Emily's like, you know what? I'm tired of living like this. I wanna get clean and I wanna do better. And so Emily calls up her parents and she's like, hey, I wanna get clean. Can you help pay for rehab? I don't have any money. And her parents are like, yes, yes, we'll do it. So fast forward, she starts doing rehab. She finishes the program and then she relapses as soon as she gets out. And also just like a side note, that's super common. If you ever see like a rehab facility being like, only 2% of our clients relapse, they are lying or they are fudging their numbers because even the best, most expensive rehab facilities have a high relapse rate because this is a very complicated issue. So anyways, so relapses, a year goes by. Emily's like, you know what? I really, I wanna get clean. I don't have any money. Calls up her parents and her parents are like, yep, we'll do it. We'll pay for it, go for it. This time, she only makes it halfway through. Quits, relapses, same cycle. We do this cycle 
three, four, five times. And by the sixth time, Emily's like, okay, I want to do it for real this time. She calls her parents and asks for money. And at this point, I mean, her parents don't, like, genuinely don't have it. It's not that they don't want to. They don't have it. They've cleared their savings accounts for this. They, they just don't have the money. And even if they did have the money, they've honestly, they've been burned. And they don't think it's worth bending over backwards financially for someone who's just going to quit again. And I also know, like, if you have been on the receiving end of someone who struggles with a heroin problem or a very serious drug addiction, you know that it is really difficult. For the person who's obviously struggling with the addiction, your body, like, biology, like, it physically changes how you respond to different things. Like, ibuprofen, if I have a headache, I take it, and I don't have a headache anymore. For someone who has a heroin problem, the painkillers don't, it, it doesn't work the way that it would for you and me. And so you physically feel like you have a fate worse than death if you are not using. And so it can cause you to be in a mental state that's, I mean, pretty bad. And it causes you to do things to the people that you love that you normally wouldn't do when you're in a clear mental state. So when you're on the receiving end of it, you feel like you've been manipulated, you've been stolen from, and you've been screwed over multiple times, multiple times again. So at some point you get to this point where you're like, I can't do this anymore. Like I have to just let you walk away. There's nothing that I can do. And I just, I think about that and I, and I understand that. That is not me casting judgment on you if, if you've been in that position. That's really difficult. But I just, I think about how God would handle this. So even after years and years of wasted money, emotional turmoil and hurt, God would say yes every time. God would happily write the check. And even, even if God knew this person was going to fail, he would write the check. Because Jesus, this is the main point, Jesus bends over backwards for those on the fringes and then those in need. I mean, even tying it back to Royal Family Kids Camp, Jesus would sit with Sadie, who wants to stay behind all the other kids, who takes 40 minutes to walk back up to the campground, who wants to stop and catch all the bugs, and who wants to take her shoes and socks off to walk through a puddle and then get upset that her feet are wet and wants to sit and wait for her feet to dry. Jesus would sit and wait with her because Jesus didn't say, well, you need to hurry up because you can't get with the program. You can't get with the other kids, so sucks to suck. Right? Honestly, oh, was that appropriate? I, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> Whoops, we can, we can bleep that out, it's fine. Um, because Jesus bends over backwards for people who need it. And realistically, I'm thinking about this. I know we are limited in the way that we can enact this, this, love, this love for others. Like God's love is unlimited where ours is limited. So I, I'm currently working on my bachelor's in social work. And one of the things that we learned from our professors is she was telling me that a lot of agencies work with people who are on the fringes, who either have fallen behind, struggle with drug abuse, live in poverty, who maybe their kids got put in foster care, people who, who have problems that maybe were caused by choices they made, and then maybe 
problems that were caused by choices they didn't make. So you work with all kinds of people. And even though the goal of most agencies is to help their clients, there are often limits to that care. At some point, if a client is not meeting their goals and isn't getting with the program, you have to be dropped. And it's cruel, but when you're within that like social service agency world or like nonprofit world, you know that a lot of agencies have a wait list. And they've got a ton of other people that need services. And so if you have a client that isn't meeting their goals, you're gonna try your best to help them, but you have to drop them. That's just the cruel reality of our limited resources. But when I was thinking about God's love, God does not have limits to his care. In this scenario, if God was a social worker, you know, I think God would be like the ultimate social worker, but that's just me. That's just how I think of things. Um, God would provide services to the client he knows is gonna fail. God would sit in the original, in the like initial intake, you know, intake meeting, and the client would be like, hey, you know, I'm gonna do it, but just so you know, I'm not actually gonna like meet any of these goals. I'm not really gonna do anything. God would be like, all right, well, we start tomorrow, so I'll see you then. And even like, like God doesn't become cynical when someone comes back to try again. God doesn't say, oh, here we go again. Oh, look who came crawling back and wants to get clean finally. God doesn't accept them and then cast judgment on them for the previous mistakes that they've made. God welcomes them in like nothing happened. I mean, we see that in the story of the prodigal son, that when someone comes back, that there isn't judgment or cruelty, that there's genuine warmth and love offered to them. God celebrates when the lost sheep is returned. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna end on this. The theologian N.T. Wright, I, I just really like all the stuff that he puts out, um, says this. The sovereign God isn't happy to say, well, we've still got 99. Let's not worry about the odd silly one that drifts away from the flock. Probably not worth that much anyway. No, this is the one that matters. This is the one that matters. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love, Lord. God, that where our human limits stop, God, that's where yours starts and goes further than we could even imagine, Lord. God, I thank you that you have wired us to love and be loved by others in a community, Lord. God, I pray for, first for those who maybe feel like, man, I feel like I'm that lost sheep and that I just can't find a place in the flock. I can't find a place in God's kingdom. God, I also pray that for those of us who maybe didn't leave the flock or maybe are still in it, Lord, God, that we wouldn't become cynical God, that we would embrace people and let them in our communities without judgment or without fear, Lord. 
God, I pray that we would welcome those who are on the fringes. God, may we never be embarrassed by another person, Lord. God, that we would associate with everyone, Lord, because they're made in your image, because they're loved by you. God, I thank you for the endless ways that you love us. God, I thank you, that example of leaving the 99 sheep to go after the one, God, that you have done that for us and you are going to do it for everyone. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.